be sure to follow us on Instagram at criminalafpod or click on the link in the episode description. In this episode, we revisit the serial murder spree of the man known as the Roadside Strangler, who committed numerous vicious rapes and eight murders from 1981 to 1984. The last man to be put to death in the state of Connecticut, Michael Ross. I'm Dave Jari. I'm Garrett Quarter. And this is Criminal as Fuck. What's good, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Criminal as Fuck. Once again, I'm Dave Jari, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Garrett Corder. How we doing? So, uh, we didn't get any new criminals for our Patreon this week, but we still have Christine and Beth. So, thank you so much. Uh, so, please go check out Criminal as Fuck on Patreon. There's four tiers that you can donate as little as $2 a month to help the podcast. And for any new Kemper and Bundy-level criminals, you'll receive an exclusive I Am a Criminal t-shirt. Don't worry, Christine and Beth. I'll be contacting you soon for your t-shirts. So visit patreon.com backslash criminal AF and subscribe today. Thank you guys so much, by the way. You can also gift us a one-time donation through PayPal. Just go to paypal.me slash criminal AF podcast. Any and all donations are greatly appreciated. Absolutely. And please go follow us on all of our socials. On Instagram, it's at criminal AF pod. Twitter, it's at criminal AF. TikTok, it's at criminal underscore AF. And if you're watching us on Criminal AF on YouTube, like and subscribe so you know when our next videos drop, and be sure to leave us a comment. If you love what we're doing here, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and click five stars on Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your positive reviews will help bring awareness to the Criminal AF and help boost us in the rankings. For merch, go to criminalafpod.com and click on shop. Tons of great merch to rep Criminal AF and show your support. We're actually uh, repping some uh, merch right now. Oh, yeah comfy too go get you some merch yes sir so garrett's got the uh what's your sign i'll I'll stand up for the the peoples he's got the what's your sign uh apparel to represent the zodiac little zodiac uh, killer action all right and i don't know if you can see mine but i got our fire apparel right here plus the zip up and plus the zip up i like it repping the uh, logo so if you guys get anything from the store, send us a pic. We'd love to see you guys wearing it. To leave us a me- voice message, go to the Anchor app and click on the link in the episode description. Any questions we receive will be played and answered in our next episode. I'm going to play a message we received a little while back from Cassandra. Cassandra. Hi, my name is Cassandra. I live in And my job is I'm a cook at a daycare. So all day I'm in the kitchen by myself, you know, cooking for kids. So one day I was... I was thinking, I was like, oh, let me listen to some podcasts, you know, pass some time. And your podcast was like the very first one to like draw me in. I loved it so much. Like your voice, the way you explain, it was just so good. So of course I binged through all of your episodes so fast within a week. And oh, I was so sad to like, I ran out. There, you weren't making anymore and then a couple weeks ago when you posted one I was so excited I was like yes it's gonna continue uh, just please please continue like know that I'm listening and as soon as it drops I'm I'm on it like please I love your work thank you so much 
So just a reminder that this is a true crime podcast. There will be talk of murder, rape, torture, arson, pedophilia, and pretty much any other crime that would haunt your nightmares at any given moment. There will be detailed descriptions of said events, and there will be vulgar language. Now, we understand that Criminal AF may not be for everyone. No. But we just ask that you at least give it a listen. And if it's not for you, well, thanks for checking it out. But if it is, welcome to the debauchery. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to kick it off today with a Florida man of the day. Florida. A Florida man was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon in 2000. I'm already laughing. No, keep going. (laughs) (laughs) All right. A Florida man who was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon in 2012 for donning an iconic Ku Klux Klan outfit and attacking a drag queen with a tiki torch is running for mayor of Wilton Manors. (laughs) What the At a Halloween party in 2012, Boyd Corbin attended a costume party wearing a striped KKK costume and a sign that said, Stop the race war against whites. Vote for Romney. He (laughs) He was involved in an altercation with Michael Waters, billed as the world's premier Dame Edna personator. Corbin approached the stage waving a tiki torch, and according to Waters, I turned around and said, put that thing out, and he just kept waving it around. He even thrusted it at him a couple times. <laughs> Had he come any closer, I would have gone up like Michael Jackson. What? That doesn't make any sense. No, no. Pepsi. You don't remember Michael Jackson's Pepsi commercial? No. Oh, back in the 80s, he did a, a Pepsi commercial, and there was like a bunch of like fireworks and explosions going off yeah. and because he had so much grease in his hair oh it caught on fire his hair ah, caught on fire yeah, 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 yeah. i remember that okay yep now it makes sense all right his attorney jeff dean claimed it was a misunderstanding mr corbin wore his costume to put down and mock and ridicule people who are racist and homophobic yeah okay some people didn't get it and emotions ran high mr corbin is supportive of the community and a wonderful person in the incident corbin's trials of on third-degree felony assault charges is scheduled to begin on November 10th, but on November 4th, he hopes to become mayor of a small tourist city trying to imprison him. <laughs> what the hell? The best part about this is there's nowhere else on earth where you get that story right. other than Florida. Some <laughs> weird drag bar in Florida. Oh, man. And it just reminded me of uh, the whole, like, obviously the heyday of quarantine was Tiger King. How yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe Dirt, um, <laughs> you know, ran for governor of <laughs> Oklahoma or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, he... he I just got it right here. He he received 25% of the vote. 25%? 25% of the people that voted voted for him for mayor. After? Yeah, the incumbent won. But after this, this was all going on. So he dons a KKK yep. outfit, and he got 25% of the vote. 25% of the vote. Well, it tells you. No, I was, I'm not going to vote. Wild. Well, the other crazy thing is, is that he still get, he, he dons a uh, KKK outfit. He makes fun of... Or whatever he goes after a, a drag queen. A drag queen. Yep. Um, has a court date on November tenth. Yep. And gets twenty five percent of the vote by, on November 4th. on November fourth. <laughs> oh, hey, okay. It must be a small uh, town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So I don't have any uh, absurd crime story this week, but I do have a story, and bring it on. It affected me personally really yes so i hurt my back last week and i didn't hurt it like right away it took a couple days you know i'm 47 so you know it it takes a little bit to to kick in so i'm in the shower right and i'm you know going about my business i'm just trying to figure out where this is going (laughs) (laughs) i'm going about my business do it in the shower 
And I turned, and for the first time in my entire life, I fell. Like life alert fell. Like how have like, I fallen and I can't get up? Like life alert. Now, I want to emphasize, I did not fall in the shower. Okay. I fell out. <laughs> I fell out of the shower. So. It, it, Help! Yeah. So, Help! you know, it's true when they say, like, all your, your life flashes back and everything, you know? Like, I thought I was, like, done for. Yeah, you could have hit your head, bud. Yeah, it was, like, slow motion. I'm, like... <laughs> so... That's I, wild. I, I bounced off the toilet. You're, you're not old enough to be falling on the I know. toilet, bud. I, uh, <laughs> I bounced off the toilet, and I'm laying on the floor, like, <laughs> legs up in the air. And I'm just thinking to myself, this would really suck if I died right now. Yeah. Like, Embarrassing. Right. <laughs> embarrassing. Yes. It's like, how does a man that size have that small? <laughs> now, I don't know who would find me. I don't know if my sons would come in. And I mean, who wants to find their father, you know? Balls out. With all his glory. Just <laughs> hanging did you, out. Did everywhere. you at least trim up before you went in the show? Oh, <laughs> man. You got to manscape. Come on. So, so yeah, that's my my little absurd story, I guess. Well, I'm glad you're alive. Yeah, glad, you know. But it's still kind of. I hope you don't have PTSD. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm tiptoeing in the shower now. Every time I turn, I'm like. <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh my god, my back still hurts. By the way, but anyway, so this episode uh, is going to be about a man who stole the lives of eight beautiful women, ranging in the ages of 14 to 25. Now, I did this episode, my second episode as a serial holic, back in 2019. But, you know, we were talking about it. We wanted to revisit uh, this case because the 17th anniversary of the execution of Michael Ross is coming up on May 13th. And we want to bring remembrance to Zung, Tammy, Paula, Deborah, Robin, April, Leslie, and Wendy. And uh, in this episode, we'll focus a little bit on each one. And we'll discuss, you know. So this one's going to be a little bit different where we won't have, like, full extended chapters. We're just going to isolate yep. each one as we go. So, um, Yeah, uh, another really close-to-home story, yeah. obviously. Even closer than, you know, the Cheshire murders. Um, yeah. I think everyone in our life knows somebody that was affected. Oh, absolutely. By, the, by Michael Ross. 100%. Um, yeah. I mean, my, the neighborhood, I, the, one of the bodies was found maybe a five-minute walk from the house that I grew up in yeah. as a kid. So yeah. we'll, go, we'll go into a little bit uh, how close uh, this actually hit. Uh, so without further ado, here is The Roadside Strangler, Michael Ross, Chapter 1. Growing up in the eastern part of Connecticut during the early 1980s was a scene out of a Norman Rockwell painting. There was an innocence to being a kid during that time. You'd leave your house after breakfast to play with your friends, and you didn't come home until the streetlights came on. We'd build tree forts and teepees in the woods, wade through streams trying to catch bullfrogs, and walk to the corner store to buy some candy. It was okay if you didn't have enough money. Mr. Pappas would give you some gum regardless. Yes, the innocence of youth. Where the worst thing that could happen is you'd scuff your knee jumping a bike ramp you made out of a piece of plywood in a cinder block. 
That was until early spring, 1982. The Quiet Corner, as many referred to this area of farms, forests, and small town charm, would soon be rocked to its core as a series of young women would go missing and ultimately found dead. It was rare, being in such a small community, that a person wasn't affected by this. Whether you knew the families that were affected, or you knew someone who knew them, grief didn't fall far from your doorstep. It would be some time before the mystery was solved, and the centerpiece to all this tragedy, a man who would come to be known as the Roadside Strangler, was none other than the Quiet Corner's own, Michael Bruce Ross. With Ross, you will find a familiar pattern when it comes to people who take a similar path. As children, some were molested, some were abused physically and emotionally, and some seek a love and acceptance from a person who is incapable of it. Michael Ross is believed to have experienced all three. He was brought into this world on July 26, 1959, under undesirable circumstances. His mother, Pat, at 17 years old and still in high school, was essentially forced into marriage with Michael's father, Daniel, who was believed to be in his early 20s. He was raised on an egg farm on Tatnick Road in Brooklyn, Connecticut. Ross's mother was very happy to be a mother at first, but soon became discontent with how her life was turning out. Pat began having an affair with a young man she went to school with. In 1961, Ross's mother gave birth to his sister, Donna, followed by Kenny and Tina. With both parents quick with words as well as the belt, Michael felt the turmoil pretty much from the start. He took the brunt more so from his mother. I don't want to make excuses or lessen the evil he will soon come to impose, but he lacked the love that a child deserves from their mother and instead received her constant disappointment. She would physically assault him, tell him that she wished he was never born, and place blame on him for the life that she now led. His mother left the family with her lover and moved to North Carolina. Pat's father drove down there and brought her back to Connecticut. In 1964, Pat was troubled with excessive thoughts of suicide and was institutionalized for the first time. She would proudly speak often of beating and tormenting her children, Michael specifically. In 1967, she ran off for a second time, only to be brought back and once again placed in an institution. His father, who was a cold and distant caregiver, would receive verbal assaults from Pat regarding the children, and in order to appease her, he would bring Ross behind the shed and beat him with a switch. According to his sister, Michael was sexually abused repeatedly by his 16-year-old uncle, Ned, since Ross was the age of four. His uncle would eventually kill himself, presumably because of the guilt and shame of the molestation. Regardless of all the chaos in his young life, Michael found solace in working the egg farm, where it was reported that after his uncle died, one of his duties was to snap the necks of undergrown chickens at eight years old. He would come to be efficient at this, and he would start finding that he would experience sexual gratification from this task. At the age of 12, Ross brought a six-year-old girl into the woods, made her undress, and molested her. At 13, he would begin having sexual fantasies. When I was younger, I started out with fantasies that were very 
well, they weren't violent. They were, I, I don't know how normal they were, but they, they weren't violent type fantasy. Mainly, I guess the earliest ones I can remember is I would kidnap women and take them to my safe place. And then they would fall in love with me and not want to leave. James Bond, Superman type, type things. A bedwetter into his preteens, his mother would hang his soiled sheets out the window to shame him, as well as forcing him to wear his soiled underwear on his head while he completed his chores around the egg farm. To further embarrass him, Pat would publicly humiliate him at school. Michael would go on to study agriculture at Killing High School and was said to have a high IQ of 122. It was during this time that Michael began to follow unsuspecting women. His fantasies would progress, though, to unimaginable extremes. So I grew up in the area, like, during this time. I think I was probably about the ages between 8 and 10 when uh, Ross was active. Um, But my father's best friend, Gary, who we would visit often, was like, he was basically my uncle. His kids were my cousins, you know, not by blood, but just we spent so much time there, you know. Yep. Um, Gary was the uncle of one of the girls that was murdered, April, April Brunet. And uh, I can remember her being missing, and we were at their home when they found her. Jesus. And it was like I, I Like I said, chaos. everybody here has a connection. You know, it was such an awful day. Um, another one of the girls, Wendy Barabo. Uh, she lived across the street from a family friend. Like, I didn't know her, but the pain that this man inflicted on the surrounding communities was freaking tragic and heartbreaking. It's like he didn't just kill these girls. Like, he killed families. Yep. And when I say he killed families, um, I don't want to name the name of the girl that was murdered, but her father ended up killing himself. Because he just could not deal with that loss, you know? Yep. Never was the same? No. Nope. Um, I mean, it kicks off right in it. Uh, again, you know, mommy issues causes a lot of serious oh, yeah. adult uh, problems. She was awful. Yeah. And, you know, and like I mentioned in the, in the chapter, it's when Michael was first born, that was her pride and joy. Mm-hmm. She was head over heels six months a year into it. No, no. She was like, "I'm done with this. You, you, ruined my life." You know. Do you think? Uh, I, I wonder how much they diagnosed people with postpartum. Like, I, I feel like it's not as common now. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, here, here's your baby. Go deal with it. Especially right. back in, you know, in the fifties. Yeah. Um, it was you know, dad's going to work. Here's the babies and stuff yeah, like that, and then right. like suck it up. That's why. I, Housewives were prescribed pills all the time. Like, mm-hmm. oh, deal with it. Deal with it. Right. You you wonder if they knew what they knew now, you yeah. know. But horrible individual, um, besides that fact. Uh, putting piss shorts on a kid's head. Well. What? Around the age of 12, 13 area where he started going through puberty, um, Ross was, for lack of a better way of saying it, an excessive masturbator. He was masturbating numerous times a day. And ouch. So, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> ouch is right. Um, so, not only were the soiled underwear and soiled sheets urine, they're also his semen, semen, his ejaculate. And, like, his mother 
from what I've read, his mother was obsessed with his masturbating issue. Like, obsessed. So anytime, like, like she would, like, you know, he, he was embarrassed at school. Like, she would openly discuss his masturbating with teachers, parents, kids, just, you know, just putting all of his business out there. Jesus. And, um, like, when he would wake up in the morning, he would... Rub one out? <laughs> well, I don't know, wet dream, whatever, but he would, ha- you yeah. know, have something in his underwear, and she would force him to wear it on his head. That's you know what I mean? I mean, can you imagine doing that to your kid? Yeah. I, I couldn't even fathom that. You know what I mean? Especially in, in you know, that you're in your sexual awakening, too. Right. Yep. <sighs> what a, that's that's horrible. And all the kids in school, he probably was bullied heavily. Yeah. And all all of it leads back to his mother. Yeah. Now she, she didn't set him up for, like, success in any means. No. I mean, his father wasn't any better. Yeah. You know? I mean, he was very cold and distant. He wasn't a very, like, hands-on father. He was... I mean, he's a farmer from the 50s and 60s, you know, it's... Let me know when you can get a shovel in your hand, boy. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, any sympathy, any loving, any hugs, nothing. So, um, whenever uh, Pat would get pissed off at the the kids, she would go to Dan, the father, and be like, I need you to handle this. And now Dan, you know, he's kind of quiet, you know, doesn't really, you know get involved much in the drama. Yep. You know, he's like, okay. And so he would take the kids behind the shed and beat them, whip them with a switch or a belt or whatever. You know, he doesn't even know like what they did. The mother's just like, take care of them. And he's like, okay. You know, now, I mean, as we discuss this, I mean, we're talking about Ross, the child. Yes. Correct. Ross, the child. Absolutely horrific. I feel horrible Mm -hmm. that his childhood. Most of these guys. Right. Are the same similar situations, right? Now, as he gets older, no, I don't feel bad for him. He's no. a piece of shit, you know, because he had an opportunity to fix whatever was going on in his head, and he kept it to himself, kept it silent for all for years. It also seemed like <clears throat> you know the sexual urges were creeping in even at a young age, right? And then he was attacked for it, mm-hmm. which doesn't help in his psyche. Yeah, you know what I mean. So yeah. So not only is he being physically and emotionally emasculated by his mother, being physically beaten by his father, you throw in the uncle who's sexually abusing him from like the age of four years old, you know, Uh, he ended up killing himself at when Michael was eight. Now, having having dealing with all this, uh, this next thing I'm going to talk about, I'm not excusing, I'm not condoning, I'm not anything. But when he was 12, Ross took a six-year-old girl into the woods, made her undress, and fondled her. Yep. Now, the appropriate word is fondled. Obviously, we all know what that means. That means. Um, Now, this six-year-old, she uh, told her parents, who then contacted the police. Now, Ross basically received a slap on the wrist. Um, He was brought to a... He was brought to see a psychiatrist... Um, who basically said that, oh, he's going through puberty. Yeah. Boys will he, be... He can't... Yeah, boys will yeah, be boys. Boys will be boys. So, this is the very first, I want to say, intervention that could have happened to stop everything that happened in the future. 
and is the first failure. The first failure. The first. Yes, because we'll, we'll get down the line. There's several there. failures. Yep. Um, but yeah, so we'll talk uh, a little bit about um, his time in college and his first victim here in chapter two. After high school, Ross attended Cornell University in New York and studied agricultural economics. He was a bright student and eventually began dating a woman named Rachel his sophomore year. This was Ross's first sexual experience with a woman. Their bliss didn't last for long. She would become pregnant and decide to have an abortion. Michael, scorned and upset that she went through with this, became distant and began sleeping with other women, and each relationship became a bit more perverse. Rachel enlisted in the service and left Cornell. His junior year, Ross began dating another woman named Connie, who had been previously sexually assaulted, and this excited Ross. His behavior towards her became increasingly violent, demanding that they have sex at least twice a day, and when she didn't, he would rape her. He began to view sex as a right and refused to be denied. The violence in this relationship escalated to physical abuse. He would begin to have more violent sexual fantasies and would begin stalking women, which he found sexually gratifying. Then when I got to college, somehow the started to degrading, uh, going into more violent fantasies. Uh, that's when my rape fantasies first started, was when I was in college. I started following women home and I would get a thrill by them knowing that I was following them, that they would be scared, and you know that, that gave me a thrill. And then it got to the point where I actually raped someone at Cornell, and then uh, the next person I actually raped and killed. On May 12, 1981, a body was found in Fall Creek Gorge. The victim's name was Zong Nak Tu, 25, a graduate student in economics, who came to the U.S. from Vietnam at the age of 10. Many would describe her as bright, smart, and a great sense of humor. She was the pride of her family, who would often come by the carloads to celebrate her accomplishments. She was leaving the library after a late night of studying. Ross grabbed her, told her to remove her skirt, and viciously raped her. He then told her to put her skirt back on, lay on her stomach, and he strangled her to death. She was found two days later, at first believed to be a suicide, soon it was discovered that she had been raped and had a fractured skull. So in uh, court documents relating to his time at Cornell, uh, Ross was questioned and admitted to the rape of a woman identified as KG on May 6, 1981, where he would force her to perform fellatio and to degrade her even more, would forcefully thrust his penis into her throat. Then there was the rape and murder of Zong Nak Tu on May 12, 1981 and the attempted rape of a woman identified as T.T. on May 14, 1981. Uh, she escaped by screaming and yelling rape, and a bystander came running over to a sister, and uh, Ross obviously took off. Yeah. Now, this is all happening while he's dating Connie, and what he would say later is that whenever he and Connie got into arguments, rather than directing his anger towards her, he would direct it towards people... He had no idea, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like people who had no name, no face, no... He'd just go out looking. Just go out looking. And this would become more prevalent in the coming years. What's wild is 
he didn't you know if you look back at the two even just the two episodes that we did pre- previously um the Cheshire murders and stuff th- there was a slow burn he jumped he, he raped one woman yeah. and then rape and murder right there was no like he went right in he knew exactly what he wanted mm-hmm. it, that's wild yep so Ross never mentioned this in his initial confessions yep. back in uh, 84 uh, it wasn't until 1998 that Ross admitted any of this as well as another New York rape and murder, which we'll discuss in a little bit. Um, it's believed because Connecticut had the death penalty. New York had it, but under certain circumstances. Yep. And Ross didn't want to confess to any murders or rapes in New York at the time, uh, in the event that it created a jurisdictional issue. Uh, now, New York completely abolished the death penalty in 1994, hence why he felt more comfortable uh, admitting to those murders because now, you know, he he didn't have to face death penalty in New York. Yeah. So we'll go into uh, the next chapter. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Ross's second victim, uh, Tammy Williams from Brooklyn, Connecticut. So here we go. Ross graduated that June and began working in North Carolina. After he was arrested for an attempted rape on a business trip in Illinois, He left his job in North Carolina and returned to Connecticut. On January 5th, 1982, the next young woman would go missing. Tammy Williams, 17 of Brooklyn, Connecticut, was a normal teenager who liked to hang out with her friends and listen to music. She loved to travel and had lived in the American Samoa and Hawaii with her mother and stepfather. Missing her friends, she moved back to Connecticut to be with her father when she was 14. On this day, Michael spotted the young teen walking home along Route 6 in Brooklyn. He pulled his car to the side of the road and chased her down. Three witnesses would later come forward to say that they saw the confrontation, but figured it was just a boyfriend and girlfriend having a fight. Ross finally gained control and drove to a secluded area off of South Street. What would now become his M.O., Ross tied Tammy's hands behind her back forced her to perform fellatio, raped her, and then told her to lay on her stomach with a promise that once he finished, he would leave. He didn't. Tammy knew her attacker, and she didn't live far from Ross. She attended the same high school and would often take shortcuts to his family farm. Straddling her back, he wrapped his hands around her neck and strangled her to death. Her body was found two years later, after he confessed to her murder, in a swamp off of Route 6 in Brooklyn, Connecticut, under a pile of rocks, an area her family had searched repeatedly. So the one thing you'll find with most serial killers is that they return to the scene of crime or to the remains of their victim. You know, Bundy did it. Uh, Arthur Shawcross, uh, the reason he was caught is because he was staring over the frozen body of this of one of his victims masturbating on a bridge. <laughs> You know, so it's pretty common that they go back to relive, you know, those memories, the memories, the their excitement over the over the act yep. and whatnot. Now, Ross is no different. Uh, for three weeks after Tammy's murder, Ross would return almost daily to relive the rape and murder. Uh, he would masturbate over Tammy's remains. And some even speculate that he may have had sex with her corpse. He uh, never admitted to that. though. No, he never admitted to that. Um, but he had 
to a psychologist admitted, admitted to others. Mm-hmm. His sexual deviance is, is definitely escalating. So there's a, there's a church in Brooklyn. It's a well-known church. Uh, it's called Trinity Church. Pictures. You've been there. Yeah. Um, now, Trinity has a whole bunch of lore about it. You know, it's haunted. Uh, people were murdered inside the church. You know, it's not, it's not an active church, I, I don't believe, anymore. But some people say that he brought Tammy to this church, and that's where he raped and killed her. Now, there's no proof of that. Yep. But... Um, I guess that just gets added to the folklore of the church. I've actually been there, to be honest. In the middle does of the night, ha- does it look haunted? Dude, it's haunted as fuck. <laughs> let me tell you. Um, yeah, if you go in, if you go into the cemetery in the back, uh, you can actually see what looks like a man, like crying over a grave. That's terrifying. Yeah, I may or may not have witnessed that. I don't want to appear to be crazy. Yeah. But I, I did witness it. Though. I, I believe you. I believe you. If anyway, I, I, be, I would def- yeah. I'd definitely believe you. Yeah, and at, at night you see like weird lights going through the windows. Anyway, we're getting off track. So uh, in chapter four, we're going to talk a little bit about Paula. Now, there's not a lot out there about about Paula Pereira, um, but for the most part, people just say you know she was bubbly, bubbly, always happy. I mean, you have to be pretty trust, uh, trustworthy person to just jump in people's cars. She, right. she uh, hitchhiked everywhere. Yeah. So uh, this chapter, we'll talk a little bit about her, um, and then we'll continue. March of 1982 found Michael traveling again to Cornell to visit Connie. When he arrived, he found that Connie was dating another man. He remained there for the weekend, presumably forcing himself sexually and physically assaulting Connie the entire time. On his way back to Connecticut, he crossed paths with 16-year-old Paula Pereira, an adventurous teen who was trusting to a fall. She was loved by many as she was so full of life, carefree, and would lend an ear to anyone who needed it. Her adventures would lead her to hitchhiking, and she would tell tall tales of all the wonderful people she had met. Concerned, her friends would urge her not to take such a risk, but as she would say, I wouldn't take rides from anyone creepy. Paula had called a friend to pick her up from her culinary class, and when they couldn't, she decided to hitchhike. The petite, five-foot aspiring chef found a ride with Michael Ross, who would soon be dragged into a wooded area where he would beat, rape, and strangle her with his bare hands. Ross then proceeded onto I-84 back to Connecticut as if nothing happened. Paula was found two weeks later along the side of the road. So Paula Pereira, um, mm-hmm. I mean, if you've seen the pictures, looks an adorable, oh, yeah. friendly-looking girl. Yeah. Here's um, a button. I guess she was bullied in in you know middle school and high school a mm. lot to the point where she never wanted to even take the bus to school. So right. that's where she started hitching rides just to go to school every day. So I mean, you gotta you have to realize by the time. Michael abducts her. How many? How many people have she's has she caught rides from? Right. So this was not just another day for her, and it's wild that she got that confident that you know, yeah. hey, I'm not going to take any rides from. Uh, I don't. I won't get in the car if he's weird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Michael didn't seem weird. I guess. I don't take rides from anybody creepy. Yeah. yeah. He talks about how that when when he was in his zone, he had he never understood it, but he had ways to 
either get what he wanted or to put people at ease so that he could get what you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. So either way, the bottom line was he's going to get what he wanted. So in a situation with like Paula, uh, I can only assume that because he had no people skills. Yeah. Now when we talk about his childhood, like he didn't have any friends. Yep. There was no time for friends. Um, his only interaction with anybody was his family members who were raping him, beating him, and, and yeah. scolding him. Small town too, so you know yeah. any little bit of ammo that those little kids, those kids had on him, they would use it on him. Right. You know. So the only uh, interpersonal exchanges that he's had it was when he was in college, yeah. and we all saw what what was going on there. You know. So for him to actually be able to put someone at ease, to have them get into the car with him. You know, it is. I'm surprised he was able to hold down a girlfriend for so long too. Because yeah, well, he he was a pretty shitty person there, yeah. Connie. You know. Yeah, she probably just stuck with him for a little bit. Yeah. So uh, next, we'll talk about Deborah Taylor from uh, Hewitt City, Connecticut. Ross had accepted a job in Ohio shortly after Paula's rape and murder. On April 26, 1982, Ross sees a woman leaving a laundromat and follows her home. He knocks on her door and introduces himself as Michael Ross, and he needed to use the phone because his car broke down. Once inside, Ross attempts to restrain her. Little did he know, the woman was an off-duty police officer and successfully fights off Ross. He flees, but the police show up at Ross's house and arrest him. Ross was released on bail loses his job and returns to Connecticut. Connie graduated in May and told Ross not to come to her graduation. Infuriated, Ross begins to look for his next victim. Here he would find 23-year-old Deborah Taylor of Grizzle, Connecticut. Deborah loved Elvis Presley and took great pride in being an aunt, as she would often babysit and dote on them excessively. She was traveling with her estranged husband when their car ran out of gas near the town of Danielson on June 15, 1982. An argument ensued, and they decided to split in each direction to try and find a gas station. She was last seen by a witness sitting on a park bench. Ross, presumably seeing the vulnerable woman, again pulled to the side of the road and offered her a ride. He brought her to a cornfield in the town of Canterbury. He told her to remove all of her clothes, tied her up, and raped her with the promise of letting her go. Ross had said that Deborah didn't fight back because she wanted to be able to go home to get her little brother on the school bus in the morning. Her skeletal remains were found in October of 1982. Her loved one still takes solace in listening to her old records. As her sister once stated, those songs, hearing them, bring her to me. In July of 1982, Connie returns the engagement ring to Ross and ends their relationship. In August, Ross must travel to Ohio to serve a six-month prison term for the assault of the off-duty police officer. He served four months and was released. While Ross was in prison, the women of the quiet corner were safe. When Ross returns to Connecticut in December, he accepts a job as an insurance agent, and according to his co-workers at the time, Ross is young, unassuming, and a rising star in the industry. His thirst for sexual deviance wouldn't remain dormant for long. 
So as we learned, uh, Ross had been arrested for an attempted rape on an off-duty police officer. What luck was that? But uh, part of his release on bail was that he see a psychiatrist. Now, keep this in mind as we continue further because uh, Ross continues to see this psychiatrist twice a week for the following two years. Yep. All while committing these vicious assaults. Now, my question is, did the psychiatrist not pick up on this? Or was Ross that good at separating um, his sexually sadistic thoughts? You know, He also liked leaving bre- breadcrumbs, though, yeah. too. So, I, I mean, maybe you'll ne- we'll never know. No. Like, and, and, like, this is part two of failure to, like, see what's going on here. Yep. You know what I mean? At this point, he's done some prison time yeah. for sexual assault. So basically, um, from what I was, what I read is that those sessions with the psychiatrist had nothing to do with his sexual thoughts, his sexual actions, anything. It was basically, oh, let's talk about mom and dad. Oh, you got mommy issues? Okay, let's talk about mom. Yeah. There was nothing to, now, if they actually got into, like, hey, like, what do you think of a woman in this situation, you know? That started what, <laughs> you know, they were red flag, red flag, red, red flag, flag, red flag. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now Deborah's. There, it seems like there's a there's a trend too with all these guys is mm-hmm. they all slip through the cracks. Oh yeah, like yeah. all of them have had you know interactions with police or or previous you know big huge red flags and they just right they, they keeps. So that was that was number two of slipping through the crack. This is number three. Deborah Taylor's body was apparently found on a satellite farm of his family business. So, you know, the egg farm that they had in Brooklyn. Yep. They had satellite farms throughout eastern Connecticut. Yep. This was found in on one of their farms. Now, we just see time and again that the that the system is partly at fault for, for, for all of these. Now, if you make the connection, now he, he was arrested twice for attempted rape. Uh, once in North Carolina, once in... Uh, where he was sentenced, sentenced to probation. I'm sorry, once in, one in Illinois, yep. he was sentenced to probation. The one in Ohio, he made bail. Uh, he was seeing his psychiatrist twice a week, and now a woman's body is found raped and murdered yeah. on family-owned land. Yeah, this isn't just a, you know, um, even a murder. This is a rape and murder. That's, right. you know, they should start looking into yeah, just so history. A lot of dots were not being connected, yep. you know. So allegedly, uh, Ross was a wasn't a sub a suspect at the time because he was in jail in Ohio when Deborah's body was found. But you ha- you have to wonder, like, couldn't they tell how long Deborah's body has been there for? You know, I mean, I don't know what the science was back in the early '80s, but early '80s, you'd think that they'd be able to t- tell how yeah, long a body's like been okay, this has been for. three months, it's been, yeah. you know. So I don't know. But, I mean, you, you see all these things just, like, t- check, 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 lining up. and So I think right now, Deborah, Deborah's murder is when the state police start it getting involved. It starts spikes right. on their radar. Yeah, because it's a major crime, and our town police departments don't yep. really deal with major crimes. It goes straight to the state. All right, we'll talk about uh, Robin Stavinsky here in the next chapter. His spree picks up on November 19, 1983, when he saw 19-year-old Robin Stavinsky, originally from Columbia, Connecticut, walking along Route 32 in Norwich, Connecticut. She had recently moved to Norwich and was in the process of saving money to go to college. Robin was an athletic woman, excelling in every sport she participated in, 
According to a story from the Hartford Current, Robin was given the nickname Hulk by her male classmates in reference to her muscular physique. She was last seen by her co-workers, and it's presumed that she had tried to find a ride home by hitchhiking. Ross claims that he saw Robin on the road, stopped his car, and chased her down. Because Robin was physically fit, Ross immediately strangled Robin first and dragged her into the woods. She started to come to as he was raping her, but she was too weak from the strangulation to fight back. Ross says that the rape only lasted a few minutes, and he again strangled Robin, this time to her death. She was found by a jogger a week later, Thanksgiving Day, covered in leaves on the grounds of the Uncas on the Thames Hospital. So now Ross, he'll talk later on that when he does these attacks, like he's outside of his body, like he doesn't really know what's going on, you know, he just does it and and whatever. But with Primal. Right. But with Robin was physically fit. Beautiful, Beautiful girl. Beautiful girl. Strong. You know, very athletic. Yep. So when he attacks her, you know, like with the others, he fights and struggles and drags them and everything like that. With her, he had to actually strangle her first and then drag her out because obviously by looking at the size of her, she should probably whoop his ass, you know? If you're in such a blind, you know, rage or whatever, that's taking some thought process. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm going to attack this girl, but first I'm going to I'm going to strangle her first, you know, rather than doing it the custom, the usual way that he does. By just grabbing and dragging. Yeah, you know? she was one of the ones that wasn't his MO. Either. Right. She was taller, yep. looked older. Mm-hmm. The other girls looked very young. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. So now he's getting bolder in his attacks. And because the location where Robin's remains were found on the Uncas on the Thames uh, was about 40 yards away from the satellite office of the Eastern Connecticut Major Crime Squad, which is now investigating. Yeah. Deborah and now Robin. The balls. Right. Yeah. Like, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah, this is where it gets close to my, you know, yeah. my life. Because I grew, like I said, I grew up. It was a 10-minute walk to where that body was found. Yeah. I, we, I grew up right there. Yeah. And my neighbor was best friends with Robin. Oh. Well, or very good friends at that point. She yeah. said best friends. Yeah, it's just, it's, I can't even fathom, like, becoming brazen in their acts. And, yeah. And... 40 yards, less than a football field away. Do you think this one is a, like, ha, can you catch me type of deal? Uh, Yeah, I 100% believe that because I'll tell you a little something later on that's probably going to fucking blow your mind. I'm ready for it. So we're going to uh, Chapter 7 with uh, April Brunet and Leslie Shelley. Ross and his new girlfriend went on a trip to Florida when she received news that her father had died. They had to cut their trip short and return to Connecticut, much to the disdain of Ross. After attending the wake, Ross met his next two victims. 14-year-old best friends April Brunet and Leslie Shelley shared a bond stronger than most siblings do. First meeting when they were six years old when April's family moved in three houses down the street. They did everything together, and had even drawn up fake adoption letters so they could become sisters. April, being six months older, was a freshman while Leslie was still in the eighth grade. That didn't interfere with their sisterhood, however. 
they still find each other after school and go for walks, play pranks on each other, and talk about boys. On Easter Sunday, April 22, 1984, after both April and Leslie had attended a church service and babysat for Leslie's younger siblings, they begged their parents to go to the local theater to catch a movie. They agreed. With the movie over, Leslie called her father, as was required by all the Shelley children, to let him know that they had a ride and would be home soon. For reasons unknown, they chose not to call for another ride and opted to walk the three miles back to their house. It was during this walk that Ross seen the two young girls and offered them a ride. While this theory was heavily disputed amongst many investigating the case, the official record states that they would soon find themselves just over the border in Rhode Island at a place called Beach Pond. I picked them up. They wanted me to drop them off at a gas station. I drove right by the gas station. Uh, one of them pulled a knife on me, um, like a kitchen knife type thing. I almost drove off the road. I was so surprised. <laughs> and I don't know what I said, but I said something, and she gave the knife to me. I obviously scared her. Anyway, took them to a place, tied them up, with some cloth that I had in the uh, back seat. I put the younger girl, Leslie Shelley, into the trunk of the car, and I took the other girl, uh, April Bernay, out, and I raped her and killed her, and I put her in the front seat. Ross would later state, as he was raping and strangling April, he could hear Leslie from the trunk of his car offering words of support for her friend, telling her everything would be okay. After April's murder, he turned to Leslie, he would apologize to her for what he was about to do, and then, in the same fashion as the others, he told her to lay on her stomach and strangled her to death. Well, the smallest one, Leslie Shelley, has always bothered me more than the others. I think it was because she was so small. I think it was because she was so cooperative. And I think it was because the way she was killed was so close to the fantasies. It was, that was the one that was, it was like it was a fantasy. Their bodies were placed in a culvert in Preston, Connecticut, covered with rocks. Now, the murders of April and Leslie were heavily disputed amongst the investigators. Uh, the testimony that was presented claims Ross kidnapped the girls in Grizzle, Connecticut, drove them into Rhode Island, where he raped and murdered them uh, in an area called Beach Pond, and then drove the bodies back into Connecticut for disposal in Preston, Preston, Connecticut. Now, the contention is that this would be the first and only time that Ross had transported the remains of his victims, and some believe that this was an attempt by Ross to like, create a jurisdiction problem, you know, because Connecticut had the death penalty, Rhode Island did not. He's, he's trying to cause confusion now. Ross initially admitted to, in 1985 that uh, Leslie Shelley was the only victim that he didn't rape. But in a inter- 1987 interview with a psychiatrist, Ross admitted that while he was trying, he tried to rape Leslie vaginally without getting too graphic. Uh, Leslie was very petite, like four foot eight, 80 pounds at the most. And Ross couldn't fit. Perform. Yeah. yeah. So he sodomized her Ugh. instead uh, it, prior every, to murdering her. Everything that I've read and watched about mm-hmm. Michael is Le- Leslie hit him different. Yeah. It seems like even when you watch the prison interview with him, like mm-hmm. he something about that Leslie's death really kind of tricked his mind. Yeah. It wasn't the same as everybody else. Right. 
he almost felt remorse. Yeah. You know? Yep. A uh, source that I know that worked close to the case uh, had told me that Leslie was the one that Ross fantasizes about the most. Yeah. Uh, and he, this is one of, the, one of the times he admitted, he would actually return to the body of Leslie and have sex with her. You know? Um, just a fucking sick and disturbing man. Yeah, those those two girls, they, they look so young too. Yeah. Very sad. We'll go into the final victim of Ross, uh, Wendy Barabo. In May of 1984, Ross breaks up with his girlfriend as his sadistic thoughts crank into overdrive. He would admit to going out every single night to stalk for his next victims. In June, he finds his next target by chance. Wendy Barabo, 17, of Lisbon, Connecticut, had a love of movies and music. She would often sit in on jam sessions with a local band. She was loved by all of her classmates at Norwich Free Academy and was described as caring, sensitive, and full of life. After leaving a note in the kitchen to let her parents know she was walking to the local convenience store, Wendy was last seen June 13, 1984, walking along Route 12 in Lisbon. Ross was heading home when he saw Wendy. He pulled to the side of the road and walked with her for a bit, asking if she would like to attend a company picnic with him. When there was a lull in the amount of traffic that was passing by, Ross made his move. I was supposed to be working with a colleague that day. He called in sick in the afternoon. We're going to go do cold calls, uh, knocking on apartment sales. And uh, he called in. He didn't want to do it. So I stopped at the uh, printing shop and picked up some printing stuff. I was on my way home. It was 3.30 in the afternoon on a fairly well-driven road. Uh, she was walking along the side of the road. I just stopped the car, got out of the car, went, raped her and killed her. Ross would go on to say that he made Wendy undress, forced her to perform oral sex, and brutally raped her. He would also say how difficult it was to strangle Wendy. He used so much force that his fingers cramped up. He had to release and stretch his fingers and do it again. When he released again, Wendy was still alive, barely, but she was a fighter. Ross had to attempt a third time in order to complete his evil wrath. He dragged Wendy's lifeless body to the corner of an old stone wall and concealed her within the base of the wall. The rape and murder of Wendy Barabo would prove to be his last. Because of the high-profile location along Route 12 where he decided to take Wendy, the following days were flooded with witness statements. People claimed they saw a blue Toyota pull a U-turn so fast they thought the car blew a tire. Others reported seeing the blue Toyota parked on the side of the road. Some claimed to see a slender white male following behind a young woman matching Wendy's description. Police, believing that the killer was a local and familiar with the area, began a DMV search for this vehicle. The results came back with 2,500 vehicles that fit the description. Eventually, detectives arrived on Ross's doorstep. After agreeing with the detectives to go with them to the makeshift police command post at the Lisbon Town Hall, Ross admitted to killing Wendy. Over the next two days, he would lead police to the locations of Tammy Williams, April Burnet, and Leslie Shelley. He would later admit that he would return to these sites to either masturbate or have sex with their remains. 
And with that, Michael Ross was officially arrested for murder. Now, when the police finally had Ross in for questioning, uh, they only had him in there for the, mur- the rape and murder of Wendy Barabo. They had no idea that the man that was sitting in front of him was a raping pedophile serial, serial killer. Okay, and after you know going back and forth and they're talking and whatnot, you know Ross confessed to uh, murdering Wendy. They're wrapping up. They're like, okay, cool. This is case closed. All right, let's ship him off to prison. You know, as they're getting ready to leave, he's like, don't you want to know about the others? Oof. I just got goosebumps. Yeah. Like, they had no idea that the man sitting before them was doing all these things. You know what I mean? No clue. Um, I actually know a detective that was part of this investigation. Um, Each detective was responsible for different... You know, missing the murder, the whatnot. There was a detective, Detective uh, Malchik. Uh, he became like the most uh, noticeable. He was just by chance the one who knocked on Ross's door. Yeah, they've been trying to get Michael for a little bit. My source knocked on the door. Then the next day it was another guy, yep. another guy, another guy. And it just so happened that Malchik was the one that he answered. You know, so you know he gets all the credit and everything for catching Michael Ross, Michael Ross, but it was actually a collaborative collaborative effort amongst all the detectives that were working each of those cases. Now, this is something that, that's going to send shivers down your spine, okay? So, the detective that I know, uh, who was working a case, told me that when he was talking to Ross, Ross would mention the detective's daughters. Oh. He knew each in every detective on each of the cases where they lived uh, and in this situation Ross brought up, the, brought up the time that the detective was at the mall with his daughters and how close he was walking with them like creepy as fuck going home that day would have been rough for me if I was yeah. in those detective shoes that's right. oof yep like basically like like I'm not gonna use the name I'll, I'll make up a name but How's how's Karen? Yeah, he probably. Now at the time, you Karen want... was ten years old. Yeah, you want to talk about goosebumps? Imagine that. You know what I mean? Like this dude was one truly sick fuck. He was covering all his ends too. Yeah. So like when I say uh, Robin Stavinsky being played, you know, being raped and murdered forty yards from their from the police's front door, yeah, that was a hundred percent planned. That was maybe not planned, but yeah, it was a big fuck you to the yeah, police. To the you know police. what I mean? But all right, we'll talk about the uh, what happened to Ross and and death penalty and how big of a subject that was in the state of Connecticut. And so, chapter nine. To the torment of the victims' families, the story of Michael Ross would continue another twenty-one years. He would plead no contest to the murders of Tammy Williams and Deborah Taylor and received a maximum of 120 years for each. He was then convicted and sentenced to death for the murders of Robin Stavinsky, April Brunet, Leslie Shelley, and Wendy Barabo. He is later convicted and sentenced to 25 years in the state of New York for the rape and murder of Paula Pereira. Even though Ross had later confessed to the rape and murder of Zung Nak Tu, prosecutors in New York never charged him. 
His story also involves stalking, sexual assaults, and attempted murder. Besides Connecticut, his span would reach the states of New York, North Carolina, Ohio, and Illinois. In 1981, while in North Carolina for his first job after Cornell, he came across a young woman and her baby. Problems in my personal relationships were something that fueled it. I guess, I guess the best way to describe it is, is I would blow up, and so I would have to be under pressure, and then there would, there would have to be something to trigger it. If you, if you have an explosive, it has to be ready to go, and something has to trigger that. My relationship with women, when I was having problems with women, that would build up the, the pressure, so to speak. And then when I saw a woman in a vulnerable situation, that was the trigger, and that's when I killed. When I was with one woman in particular, I killed four people. Then I had a relationship with another woman, and I didn't kill anyone. I, I did rape a person, but I didn't kill her. And then when I went with another woman, uh, I killed four people. So there is a direct connection between who I'm with when I actually kill people. Um, they say what it is is that I can't hurt the person that I'm with. It's called splitting. I love that person. I need that person for my emotional well-being. So I take the anger that I feel towards that person and I inflict it on someone unknown, someone that I don't know at all, that have no emotional ties to at all, and, and someone who I can make as a non-person. That's, that's how I, I kill them, because they're not people anymore. I had just dropped Connie off. Connie had come down, my fiance, come down to uh, North Carolina to visit me, and I had just dropped her off the airport. She was going home. And uh, again, that's another one of the cases where I think we didn't have a very good visit, and I think the built things up. I saw this woman walking along the road with a uh, stroller. I pulled off the side of the road. She came into the driveway, walked up the driveway. I was behind the house. She saw me and I grabbed her. I told her that if she didn't do what I, I wanted, that I would smash the baby's head against the wall of the house. Uh, I raped her, strangled her. I left her for dead. The only reason she's not dead is uh, has nothing, nothing to do with me. It's uh, strictly an act of God. After his arrest for the murders in Connecticut in 1984, Ross would be charged for her rape and attempted murder. There was another instance where he was accused of rape in Plainfield, Connecticut in 1983, but police did not have sufficient evidence to arrest him. His accuser, in a strange and macabre plot twist, would come forward to petition the state to spare his life. While in prison, his sadistic obsessions didn't subside suffering from a paraphilic disorder called sexual sadism. And I guess from all I've learned over the years, it seems to be a combination of both of something biologically wrong with my head and being the way I was raised. My biggest thrill sexually is from thoughts of, of actually strangling a woman. When I first came up here, I would relive the murders, the, the, the young girls that I killed. I would relive them um, multiple times a day, you know, at least two, three, and on, on bad times, this is kind of a cyclical thing. There would be periods of time, I'm talking over weeks now, where I would go through bad periods and, and I would relive it many times a day. And I would masturbate to these thoughts to the point of actually uh, having sores on myself. 
This case sparked much debate in the state of Connecticut. There were numerous protests concerning the death penalty after he received his sentence. After years of appeals, petitions, and stays of execution, Ross decided to waive his rights and proceed with his date with death. I used them, I degraded them for my own personal pleasure. It had to end. They got me on death row like that's some, supposed to be some big punishment. For some of us, death is not a punishment. Living is what the punishment is. Shortly after 2 a.m. on May 13, 2005, Michael Ross was strapped down and injected with a lethal concoction. The first medication was injected and he went to sleep. The second relaxed his muscles and the third stopped his heart. Laying before the victim's friends, family, and witnesses, Michael Bruce Ross was dead. You would think that if you killed somebody, that you would have that face imprinted in your mind. You wouldn't be able to get it out of your mind. I don't have that. I never had that. The only only face that I can see is what was in the newspapers a few days later when they were when they were missing, you know, like the high school picture. Anybody know where this girl is type thing. That's when I think of them, that's the picture I see. I don't see them as they were when I killed them. And and if you had stopped me like right afterwards and gave me like a composite drawing of like 12 pictures, you know, some blondes, brunettes, whatever, I wouldn't have been able to pick them out even immediately after I killed them. I don't want to say I don't have any remorse. It's just I, it's like they weren't real. What a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't real. Yep. All those girls were real. They didn't deserve to go out like that. Hell no. On Right before he waived his rights, uh, his main therapist in prison, asked him like you don't want to go through this you're suicidal you're not you know what i mean he's he's yeah. not in the you're you're just suicidal that's why they they were so adamant to not put him to death and that's why there were so many appeals mm -hmm. and he smirked and yeah. said you think whatever you want and yeah. then went back into his cell yeah. and i think so i don't think you want he didn't want to live no i want to live life in prison that's what the the biggest like debate was is that ross wanted to die yeah. You know, and and it wasn't because... Good. Yeah. Let him. It, it wasn't like, you know, oh, you know, I want to die because I'm a horrible person and and I did all these horrible things. No, it's basically state-assisted suicide because yeah. he didn't want to like, be there anymore. And they know? tried... They, they don't want to look... They don't want it to look like that. Right. That's why they, you know, 17 appeals and all this other stuff. Yeah. Also, I... There was stays of execution from the governor. Like this went on for twenty plus twenty yeah. plus years. That's why they say it's more expensive to put someone on death row and execute them than it is to keep them in life life in jail. Yeah. Uh, I will say though, his his aunt testified against the death penalty for him on his behalf. When him and his her, the aunt and the dad were the only two that ever did that. The aunt's theory makes sense to me too, okay. as much as she said, "Hey, let him rot in the re jail for the rest of his life." Like you guys can study him. You can use use him for science, and I agree with that. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, no, I, I bring him out in the back and put a bullet in his head. Like, right. don't people like that shouldn't yeah. live on Earth. And it's it's or let him out the front door to prison. Five minutes. Oh, f not yeah. yeah, five minutes. Five minutes in Gen oh. Pop. Forget about yeah. it. Now Ross in this chapter, he talks about the woman in North Carolina who he raped after having an argument with his with Connie. Um, the way he describes it is bad enough, but. He left out some details. So he 
wrapped his belt around around her neck, and in the ensuing chaos, he knocked over the stroller, and the baby fell to the ground. Yep. Now, the baby screaming, crying, naturally normal. This enrages Ross. Starts beating the woman in the face. Yep. He's like, shut that baby up shut the baby up i'm gonna smash his head i'm gonna kill you know all it was fucking dude so um he forced himself both orally and vaginally on her uh later on the stomach strangled her with the belt and left her for dead leaving the baby crying now the woman to be able to do all that with a baby crying in the background wild and so the woman regained conscious consciousness like two hours later and uh was able to struggle her way to neighbors for help. Um, you know, as I say in the chapter, like, nobody knew anything about this for years until he finally what's, mentioned it later. What's crazy, too, is if you look at all the other victims lying on their be- lying on their stomach with his hands. Mm-hmm. This was the one that seemed it seemed more in a panic because he was angry with, his, with Connie. Right. You know what I mean? It, yeah. He didn't have time to set up. Right. T- time to think about how he was going to do anything. That's why when he says that, you know, I just saw red to an extent, but you, yeah. you, you, everything was done the exact same way. Right. And it was his, you know, his thing, his, his niche. MO. Yeah. yeah. So yep. you can see the desperation in that one. Yeah. And now, why it didn't go well. Now this one happened right after he and uh, Connie, Connie came and visited him and he drops off the airport. I guess they had a huge fight. And like I said, you know, uh, Ross treated Connie like a piece of shit. Yeah. You know, that was basically his punching bag, sex doll, yeah, whatever. I don't, I don't blame her for bringing the ring back. You know? And uh, so he had just dropped her off, and he was coming back from the airport when he saw this woman. You know, when you, when you think of, like, serial murders, you know, like just reading, like, a generic story or or watching, you know, something on TV, like, it's very neutered you know there's not really a lot of information but when you actually like read the facts and the details and everything that happened like michael ross you know the way they portrayed him in his interviews and everything like that you know yeah he's a horrible person but you know they're like oh you know tell us about this tell us about this and he tells a fantastic story yeah however this dude is fucked up fucking sick yeah. You know what I mean? And like punching this woman because her baby's crying or, 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 you know, strength, taking three times to strangle Wendy Barabo and while she's suffering the entire time, yeah. you know, or Leslie Shelley trying to uh, penetrate her and he can't. So he Ugh. sodomizes her, you know, it, it's just, I mean, like Ross was what? Six, three. Six three. He was a big guy. Yeah, he was like six three, one sixty, one eighty somewhere. I mean, physically fit. I mean, he was like what twenty two, twenty three, twenty four around this time. Leslie Shelley is four foot eight. Yeah, like ah, that's, a, that's a kid. That's a child. I, that's the one thing that just boggles my mind. It, it just oh, I can't wrap my head around it. This little freaking girl, and he's oh, I I don't even know what to say, but. So that'll do it for this episode of Criminal as Fuck. Hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, remember to check out Criminal as Fuck on Patreon. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and like, subscribe, and comment on YouTube. Uh, for merch, whoop, 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 whoop. 
Uh, go to criminalafpod.com and select shop, and you can always gift us a one-time donation through PayPal at paypal.me backslash criminalafpodcast. Also, guys, leave us a comment and, and tell us about cases you want to hear. We would love to do, you know, we want we want to reach out to what the fans want, so. Absolutely. Um, uh, plus, I want to learn some new stuff, too. Yep. So, as always, thank you for taking the time to listen to Criminal AF. Once again, I'm Dave Jari. I'm Garrett Quarter, And we'll see you. <laughs>